Judges, Judges chapter 16, verses 23 through 31, the end of the chapter. Judges 16, 23 through 31. Let's go again to God in prayer, asking for His help and understanding this text. Our great God, we want to know You with greater clarity. We want to know the life and ministry of Christ with greater clarity, and we acknowledge that you have shown us the life and ministry of Christ in Old Testament types and shadows. And so we pray that through this final piece in the story of Samson, we would see our own condition of being a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint, but also seeing Christ and His beauty, and His salvation. Help us to see these things, we pray. Amen. Judges 16, 23 through 31. Hear now the word of God. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up, and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel twenty years. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you know your military history... You may have heard of the name Rick Strandloff. That's his real name, but it wasn't the only name that he went by. Rick Duncan was his alias. He is best known for claiming to be a Marine captain decorated with the Purple Heart and Silver Star, which would have been great and quite commendable if he had earned them. It turns out he didn't earn them. Turns out he was a fake, phony baloney, as they say. And turns out what he did was actually a pretty big deal. And the FBI exposed his lies and his impersonation. In fact, he broke the law. 
The 2005 Stolen Valor Act, which was signed into law in 2006. Before his exposure, he had speaking engagements. He was endorsing political candidates and all the rest. He even founded the Colorado Veterans Alliance in order to raise funds for our beloved veterans. Now, some might ask, so what's the big deal? Sure, he lied, but so do actors. So do politicians, perhaps even the ones he was endorsing. So does everyone else. They might even say, where's the harm? He was raising funds for our veterans. He had good intentions. Well, one huge problem is that this man, and apparently, upon some research, thousands every single year. It's a huge issue. This man claimed reputation and received recognition for honorable, self-sacrificial service that he did not perform. His act shames and spoils the name of those service members who have put on the uniform out of love and loyalty for their country and who have given their lives for it and its people. And about 3,000 years before the Stolen Valor Act was signed into law, we have in our text today an egregious violation of God's law committed by the Philistines. We see stolen valor. We see a people full of idolatry, giving praise and worship to an undeserving God because it is no God at all, Dagon. What will the Lord do to this God, to this Dagon? What will he do to all of those worshipers of Dagon? Indeed, what will the Lord do to all who mock the Lord and who arrogate to themselves valor, honor, glory, and power of which they are not worthy? We see very clearly in this text that the Lord, who is worthy of all praise, refuses to be mocked. Look again with me at verse 23. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And so we come to the point of the Samson story at which all seems lost. The Savior, Samson, is bound. Now, Christians are told to mourn with those who mourn, and we should. But what does the world do when the Christians are mourning? The world rejoices. The Philistines here believe that they have finally put an end to all their woes. They acknowledged that this man, Samson, has been the ravager of their country, who has killed many of them. Finally, we got the guy. And just look at Samson. Look how pathetic he is. You can look at him, but he can't look at you. His eyes have been gouged out. He's a weak man, bound in prison, a mockery. And we walk in on the Philistines' worship service. You see worship language throughout this, chapter, throughout this part of the story. They are worshiping Dagon. Now remember, Samson ruled between two pivotal battles. The Battle of Aphek, in which Israel was defeated, and lost that blessed Ark of the Covenant, and the Battle of Mizpah, in which Samuel conquered the Philistines and put an end to their oppression. You can read about these in 1 Samuel 4 and 7. Samson ministered to Israel during Eli's ministry, judged in the west as Jephthah was active in the east, and he continued to serve until Samuel rose to lead the people. So this is 
We come to this false god, Dagon. This is the false god of the Philistines. And scholars have tried to connect or try to understand the etymology, the, the word background of this word Dagon. And some have said that Dagon comes from the words which mean fish god, which would make sense since the Philistines are a coastal people. Sometimes the coastlands, scripture, refer to the Philistines, God who provided them their fish. Or Dagon could mean grain god, the one who provided the grain for the people. And if that's the case, then we see a little more of the background behind Samson's action to set those fire foxes on the grains of the Philistines, an attack against Dagon. Now, when you read 1 Samuel 5, you remember that 20 years before, Dagon got himself into a bit of trouble with the Lord when he stood before the ark. Remember, he lost all of his appendages and fell down headless before the ark. But now he is standing in victory, or at least his worshipers suppose he's standing in victory over Samson. Look at Dagon go. He is the one worthy of all this praise. He is the one that has brought Samson down, has humbled him. Finally, all praise be to Dagon. The world rejoices when it believes that it has won the day, when it has gotten a hold of the culture, when it believes it has enslaved the church, forcing the church to make compromises where the Lord disapproves. The world rejoices that every month of the year is Pride Month and that it has gotten so many professing Christians to bend the knee in submission to its demand of celebration. The world mocks as well. The world doesn't simply rejoice with its sinister celebration, just its delight in its own sinful ways, which, of course, it believes to be ways of freedom. It doesn't just rejoice. The world mocks. The world makes fun of the church. The world looks down upon the church with a pretend version of of pity. Oh, those poor benighted souls. If only they had been enlightened by the truths of the Enlightenment, then they would know clearly that their religion is a fake, that their God is no God at all. Exalted from exaltation of self, puffed up with pride, the world makes fun of the church. The world no longer needs the church to go halvesies with them as they pursue world domination. No, now the world can turn on the church can rejoice in its victory, and can mock its victims. Supposed victims, anyways. The Philistines are saying here, bring out Samson, that he can entertain us, that he can perform for us, that he can make us laugh. Let him be the butt of all of our jokes. Just look at him. What a spectacle. And there is a righteous, prophetic mockery As we've seen in Deborah's song in Judges 5, as we read in the Psalms, as we read in in Revelation and from Jesus' own lips, which is a joyful declaration of the God of justice who subdues all of his and our enemies. It's okay to rejoice in the victory that God has given over his enemies. 
Since the world, however, doesn't have justice on its side, since the world, however, doesn't have righteousness on its side, its mockery is unfounded. Its mockery is misplaced, even when the world will point out our own weaknesses and use them against us. Because the world does not have the God of justice on its side. The world knows no righteousness. The world knows no justice. Because the world does not bend the knee to the one who is just, who is righteous. Now this is the end of the Samson story. Began in chapter 14. How was Samson? If we were to summarize his life and ministry, how was Samson back then? Well, his life and ministry was fraught with sin and suffering. Clearly, we see that. Clearly, we see sin. Clearly, we see suffering throughout Samson's life. He was, you could say, a man of sin. He was, surprise, surprise, a sinner. Just like everyone else who has walked the earth except one, Jesus the Christ. And so what do we expect sinners to do? unless they are gripped by grace. And even so, when they are gripped by grace, what do they do until they enter glory? They sin. Often a Nazarite by name only, he never fully devoted his life to the Lord. Not one of us can say that we have fully devoted ourselves to the Lord. Of course, we sing that. Take my life and let it be wholly consecrated to thee, right? We, we sing that because that's, the, that's our heart's prayer. And we know that we struggle. We know that we sin every single day. And the Lord has given us displays of his sin. Samson insisted on having a Philistine for a wife. He knew that was wrong. Why would you do that, Samson? Your parents objected. Oh, because she was right in his eyes. But she wasn't right in the Lord's eyes. And then what does he do when he gets this wife? He insults her. Calls her a cow. Abandons her. And then tries to get her back. He plays around with his power. He becomes self-confident toys with the gift that God has given him. And he entrusts his heart to a woman, Delilah, wholly unworthy of his vulnerability. He was a sinner. Are you a sinner? Do you see how Samson's life resonates with your own? Maybe he's had bigger sins than, than you've committed. At least yours are not recorded in, his, in scriptures. I feel bad for Yodia and Syntyche, Philippians, two women who are forever in scripture of having a conflict that Paul says, get this reconciled. And here we see Samson. Most of his flaws. He was a sinner. But he wasn't only a sinner. He wasn't only a man of sin, he was also a man of sorrows. Because of his own sin and because of the oppressive attacks of other people, he suffered. I don't know how much he experienced the sorrow that accompanied his parents' sorrow, 
But surely, if he loved his parents at all, he had at least a twinge of pain when he insisted that they get him a wife, a Philistine wife, and they said, no, we don't want to do that. She's not the right one for you. Because they see their child doing something that they didn't raise him to do. And who can forget that he lost his wife, he lost his father-in-law in a fire. Would we wish that upon anyone? Even if he insulted her, we wouldn't say, yeah, you get that. You get to have your wife burned in a fire. He suffered. He lost the support of his own tribe. He lost his own eyes, for crying out loud. It must have been painful to have his eyes gouged out. He suffered the depletion of strength because God had left him for a time. How tragic that verse was. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. He experienced sorrow on account of his own sinful choices. He experienced sorrow because of the attacks of the Philistines. He was a sinner. He was a sufferer. Surely you know that you've suffered. Perhaps you're young and you've not suffered much. But the Lord tells us that we are to expect suffering. Perhaps you are young and you have already suffered much. Medical problems, perhaps. We suffer in a variety of ways. Surely his life of suffering resonates with ours as well. Is that all Samson was? He was a sinner and he was a sufferer. No, we see that he was also a man of God. He was also a saint. Despite all of this, the Lord joined himself to this weak judge. He was a saint. He was a holy one. He was an Old Testament saint, and you can read about him briefly in Hebrews 11. Dale Ralph Davis says, Samson's shame has become Yahweh's shame. For praise that belongs to Yahweh alone is being heaped at the lifeless feet of a helpless image. And because Yahweh's servant has been humiliated, Yahweh also suffers humiliation. Our God has chosen to unite himself to a weak people, to this weak judge. The Lord identifies with his sinful and suffering saints. That's the application point from this section. Surely our exalted Lord has demonstrated his commitment to a humiliated people, to a mocked people, to a suffering people. Where was the Lord when Israel wandered the wilderness? With Israel in the wilderness. Where was the Lord when Israel was afflicted and in exile? With Israel in exile. Isaiah 63, 9 says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. The Lord joined himself to this afflicted people. You can read Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, and you will see over and again that the Lord goes where the people are going. A wandering people, a people without a temple, without a tabernacle, in exile, the Lord is with them because he has pledged his presence for them. He will never leave them nor forsake them. Where was the Lord when the fullness of time had come? On the earth in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Christ didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he humbled himself. He made himself a servant. He served you and me salvation because he went to the point of death, even death on a cross. No one has been mocked like our mediator, the Messiah, has been mocked. And if we are in Christ, then we must wear that badge of mockery as a badge of honor. It's okay to be associated with the suffering servant. In fact, that's the best place to be. Because he suffered for you. He didn't suffer for his own sins because he had none. He came for you. But what will will the world say? You're you're intolerant. You're narrow-minded. You're a bigot. You are unloving. Is it okay to be called intolerant? Is it okay to be called a bigot, to be called narrow-minded when you say that Jesus is the only way for salvation, only way to the Father? Sure, we welcome conversation. Well, what do you mean by intolerant? What do you mean when you say that we are unloving, when we say that there are only two genders, that you cannot change your gender? It's actually loving to say, to give that hard truth, because this is what's best for you. This is what glorifies God. Let the world call us whatever they want to call us. Let's have those conversations with them if they are willing to have them with us. But you will not be able to escape all the name-calling. In fact, you are pronounced blessed. Jesus pronounces a blessing upon you. One of the Beatitudes, if you are suffering for righteousness' sake, don't say, no, that's not me. Say, yeah, I am in Christ, and I'm suffering because he suffered. I'll take that suffering all day long. I mentioned this last week, but Dale Ralph Davis says, at least Samson knew who the enemy was. At least Samson knew who the enemy was. And in this story, obviously, the enemy is the Philistines. And sometimes I wonder, do we Christians know who the enemy is? If we think that we are each other's enemy, we are mistaken. Let the present uncertainty, ongoing relational conflicts, let those be granted. But we are not each other's enemy. You are not my enemy. I am not your enemy. You're not each other's enemy. You're not the enemy of that church over there, the church over here, wherever. If you are in Christ, you are brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's just what the devil wants us to deny. That's just the hope of the devil, isn't it? That we are actually each other's enemy. Let them go against each other and then divide. Oh, that's... That's his heart's desire. We are friends. We are friends. Friends of God. 
God has befriended us. Praise be to him. Because I was at enmity with him. And he didn't just befriend us to himself. He befriended us with each other. We could all grow in more friendliness. We could all grow in more brotherliness, sisterliness. And I'm speaking of myself for the most part here. We are beloved. Let us view each other as beloved as well. If we think that the world is our friend or that the devil is our supporter, we are deceived. Of course, no real Christian is going to say, yes, the devil supports me. I'm in league with the devil. So sometimes we revert back to our former father's ways when we deny love. We do not pursue things the way Christ has called us to. If we think that our flesh has our best interests at heart, we must knock it in the jaw. Mortify the flesh. Put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit. We do not fight against flesh and blood, brothers and sisters, but against rulers, against authorities, powers over this present darkness, over spiritual forces of evil. Do you know, dear ones, who the enemy is? And do we hate it when God is mocked by the world? I hope so. What does this holy hatred move us to do? Do we misapply that oft-quoted famous Spurgeon saying, the word of God is like a lion, you don't have to defend a lion, all you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. Is that our approach when God's name is blasphemed? I hope not. I hope we don't say, well, God's big enough to take that, that idolatry. God's big enough to take that mockery, that blasphemy. Of course he's big enough. He's unmoved by that mockery. What does a husband do if his wife's name is blasphemed? Ah, she'll take it. What does a wife do if her husband's name is blasphemed? Ah, he could take it. He's a strong man, I know him. He's in the military, for crying out loud. He can take all those assaults. No. We defend the name of Christ, the name of all names. We speak up. We deny, not, we deny not our Savior. Jesus tells us not to deny him before men. We speak up. We say, no, that name is too beautiful to blaspheme. And it's that name that also can save you for that very blasphemy. I want you to know him. And we pray for those spiritual Philistines. We fight the mockery with the sword of the Spirit, bringing the Bible to bear on the falsehoods of all of God's blasphemers. There is, I've mentioned Michael Servetus many times from the pulpit. He was a famous, infamous heretic in the 1500s. He had a lot of nasty dealings with John Calvin. People misunderstand that episode and think that Calvin caused him to be burned at the stake. It's not true. It's a whole other discussion. But before his engagement with Calvin, he, Servetus, had many interactions with people who were... Uh, reformers who were Catholics, who were Lutherans. 
And one of the reformers, a guy named Johannes Oikolampadius, which is an incredible name, Oikolampadius. Say that nine times fast. There, so Oikolampadius and Servetus are interacting, corresponding by letter. And Oikolampadius says this to Servetus, You complain that I am too harsh. I have good reason. You contend that the Church of Christ, for a great span, has departed from the foundation of her faith. You accord more honor to Tertullian than to the whole church. You deny the one person in two natures. By denying that the Son is eternal, you deny of necessity also that the Father is eternal. You have submitted a confession of faith, which the simple and unsuspecting might approve. But I abominate your subterfuges. I will be patient in other matters, but when Christ is blasphemed, no. There was an exclamation point in the quote, so I had to do that there. When Christ is blasphemed, no. Say all you want about me. But I will, I will, I'm not going to take it. That name that saves me, that's the most precious name of all. I will not tolerate its being blasphemed. And so he's steadfast. But he doesn't end with that. He's actually also prayerful. He concludes, after mentioning many of the errors of Servetus, he says, I write this not in heat, but because I desire to serve my God. May he so enlighten your eyes that you may confess in truth Christ, the Son of God. So he is steadfast. No, the name of Christ is not going to be blasphemed. But also he's prayerful. Oh, Servetus, I, I pray that the Lord would enlighten your eyes, that you would see Christ for who he truly is. He isn't a, a creature. He isn't a mere human. He is eternal God. He is the second person the Trinity. The Trinity is not a monster as Servetus would say. The Trinity is not a three-headed dog, as Servetus would say. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is truly God. And I want you, Servetus, to see him for who he really is. And then he calls Servetus to confess. Confess his sins. And to confess Jesus as Son of God. It says, as for your promise to persevere in the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, I call upon you to confess that he is the Son of God, consubstantial and co-eternal because of the union with the Word. This you must do if we are to hold you for a Christian. Wale, or vale. Be well. He knew that if Servetus denied the deity of Christ, that we could not call him a Christian. And this wasn't just the, the perspective of Oikolampadius or of Calvin. This is the perspective of the Roman Catholics, of the Reformers, of the Lutherans, of all in the known world. We are to be steadfast. We are not going to make any compromises when somebody wants us to view Jesus in a way other than he is in Scripture. Don't try to find common ground with the Muslim who says that you must, uh, you must think of Jesus as lesser. Because if they say that Jesus is God, then they are going to commit shirk, which is the unforgivable sin in Islam. But you can't meet them halfway on that. You say, no, he is the way. He is God. Be steadfast. But be prayerful. Pray that that person who doesn't know Christ will know Christ as he truly is. 
And even, as hard as it is, call that person to confess the true Christ. It's never pleasant to speak of sin, but it's always important. And it always leads to the gospel. It ought always, anyways, to lead to the gospel. So do we hate it when God is mocked by the world? And do we hate it when God is mocked by our own lives? Samson's sin contributed to the mockery, didn't it? He squandered God's gift. He had lust for Philistines. We have surely mocked God with our own lives, haven't we? We pray that God's name would be hallowed, yet we regularly do not hallow it with our thoughts, with our words, with our actions. The watching world watches. It hears our words, and it uses our lives against us. You say this, but look what you just did. Are our words to the world full of vinegar or of honey? Does the world, seeing our lives, ask, more salt, please? Or does it sneeze at all the pepper that we put on his plate? Can they see the face of Christ through our light or barely make it out because of our dark countenance? And what do we do when we are accused of hypocrisy? Are we humble enough to confess and to repent? Don't be mistaken. When you evangelize, it's okay for you to acknowledge that you are a sinner. You don't have to be a perfect evangelist. Your life doesn't have to be perfectly in order before you can say a word about the perfect Christ. And a regular evangelistic encounter will be that someone will object and say, okay, you say this, but I know you. I mean, you're my relative. I know your sins. Yes. I need this gospel just as much as you do. Let that accusation of hypocrisy or let that acknowledgement of your own sin be another way to present the gospel. Isn't it great that God saves sinners just like you and me? What can the humiliated Samson do in the presence of so many oppressors? Verse 28 says, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He resorts to what everyone in his position is encouraged to do. He prays. Remember me, O Lord. Strengthen me, O God. Avenge me for my two eyes. Recall Psalm 26, verse 1. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. Now, we cannot say that Samson has perfectly walked in his integrity. And yet here he is calling upon the Lord to remember him, to strengthen him, to vindicate him. Samson cries out, the Lord will show that he, the Lord, not the Philistines, not Samson, but the Lord is victorious, that the Lord is almighty, that the Lord is just. And as a thief on the cross cries out to the son, Samson here cries out to the son's father, remember me, strengthen me. Vindicate me. He cries out not for his own personal safety, but for a perfect certainty of justice. Why then does he cry out? Because of his two eyes. Avenge me for my two eyes. Now remember, Samson's shame 
reflective and in accusation anyways, of the Lord's shame. Since Samson's shame was God's shame, Samson's sight here is God's sight. To gouge out the eyes of Samson, God's appointed judge, is to make this statement. Israel's God is weak. Israel's God is blind. It is incapable. It is unseen. It is uncaring. It is unwise. Israel's God is no God at all. Just look at the representative And in this way, Samson's life, his prayer, show us the Messiah. We read Luke 22 earlier today, verses 64 and 65. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You call yourself the son of God and you can't even see. They blindfold him, prophesy. If you're the real prophet, the final prophet, then tell us, who struck you? Look at this Jesus, this weak, pretend God. He was mocked. He was blasphemed. And through the psalmist, we glimpse the heart cry of the Christ. Psalm 69, verses 20 through 24. Remember, every psalm is the psalm of Christ. It says, reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforts, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. Who are the unseeing ones? But the wicked. Those who see are the righteous, are the ones who are in Christ. Was Samson's prayer answered? Was Jesus' prayer answered? Yes, to both. Verse 30. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. The Lord strengthened Samson and crushed the enemy, not by keeping Samson alive, but by putting Samson's death to great use, a victory. Fascinatingly, the word for entertain in verse 25 call Samson that he may entertain us, can actually be revocalized to mean, let Samson crush us. Now, you need to know that Hebrew language was just consonants. They spoke with vowels, but they didn't write with the vowels. And so if you just have a few consonants together, that could be a variety of words. And it was, revocal- it was vocalized to read, entertain. And certainly the Philistines meant that. They were not saying, we want Samson to crush us, but we want Samson to entertain us. And yet the the Hebrew reader comes to this and knows the consonants and says, well, there might be prophetic irony here. Let him crush us. Because that's exactly what happens. Samson's death brings destruction, a final crushing of the heads of the Philistines, the five lords of the land. They're all there. And they're crushed. They who came to sacrifice to Dagon, they become the sacrifice. 
In this way, then, again, Samson points us to the Messiah. Thomas Manton, the Puritan, says, Like Samson, Christ destroyed more enemies at his death than in all his life. What do we have? We have the heads of the world, the flesh, and the devil lying crushed under the tomb of Christ. We have Christ victorious. Conquering you. You and I, who were his enemies. He conquered us by his grace. Praise be to God. That he gave us new hearts. And now we acknowledge him as the king that he always has been. The crucified and risen Lord. Samson's supporters, we see, come finally to his aid. Verse 31 then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. So there's death and there's this burial. After Samson has already given up his life, then people come to his aid to take his body. And I imagine the Philistines were too busy trying to prepare the bodies of their own dead. And they're too panicked to worry about these family members to come and get the, the body of Samson. And so his brothers and all his family, apparently unchallenged, they come to take this body home. Samson receives a proper burial for his enemy-destroying, self-sacrificial death. And you see also how this points us to the burial of Christ, the son's spiritual family, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, and some of these women and the gospel is mentioned, they all prepared a proper burial for the Son of God. We have death, we have burial. And there's even, subtly here, the language of ascension. In verse 31, he brought up, brought him up and buried him. Nine times in the Samson story, Samson is said to go down. But now, finally, he is said to go up. Here he is brought up, he is buried in his father's tomb. Likewise, the greater Samson, Jesus the Christ, did not stay in the tomb, but he rose from the dead, and he ascended to his eternally pleased Father. In the story of Samson, then we glimpse the greater story of an incredible birth, of a miraculous life in the face of the enemy, of a sacrificial death, a true burial, and a real rising from the dead. How is Samson now? Well, Hebrews eleven thirty two to 36 offer descriptions of the, of the Old Testament saints, of what they did as they had faith in the Lord, what God was able to do through them as they entrusted themselves to the Lord. And so, and so many of those descriptions characterize Samson's ministry. Here is a man who conquered the Philistine kingdom, at least partially, making the way for David. Here is a man who enforced justice, sometimes with foxes, sometimes with a donkey jawbone. Here's a man who has obtained promises from God, promises of power, of deliverance, of satisfaction, of joy and communion with God. Here's a man who stopped the mouth of a lion. Here's a man who was made strong out of weakness. Here's a man who was mighty in war. Here's a man who caused God's enemies to flee. Here's a man whose hair and eyes testified to being tortured. Here's a man whose arms witnessed his imprisonment. Here's a man who lived, who judged, who suffered, 
who died, who went homeward. Here's a man who died with his enemies, but did not go down to Sheol with them. Here's a man in glory, of whom you could ask all of your remaining questions, and I imagine there are many. I sure have a list. But I suspect that you'd be too caught up with the man of glory, as Samson pointed us to, however imperfectly, however weakly. The Lord vindicates and exalts his sinful and suffering saints. The Lord vindicates us not because of our own lives, not because of our faithfulness, but because our lives are hidden with Christ's faithful life. He died, and so we died. He lives, and so we live. His resurrection vindicated his life and his ministry before his Father. And because our resurrection rests firmly in him who is the resurrection, when we are resurrected, God will be openly declaring us as righteous, vindicating our lives in Christ. What does that mean for us now? It means that the world can throw all it wants at us. We press on in faith. It means that we can persevere to the end because our lives are always directed by our sovereign God. It means that we can stop the mouth of that lion who seeks to devour us because we are, we are united to that lion of the tribe of Judah. It means that we can fight against the curses of the world because we have all the promises of God. It means that whether our bodies are in chains or at liberty, the gospel is not bound, and it goes freely. It means that when it is our time to go, ours is a homegoing. It means that even our deaths are precious in God's sight. Let's pray. Our beautiful Savior, we do thank you for showing us through this Old Testament type shadow, Samson, showing us Jesus Christ, who is so much better, who is excellent, eternal, the true suffering servant, and now the glorified, resurrected one. We thank you that you have helped us to see even our sin just a little bit with greater clarity. We thank you for that full forgiveness, that full atonement that you've given us for our sins. But it is our desire to live in a manner that is pleasing to the calling to which you have called us. And so we pray now that your spirit would continue to work his work of transformation in our lives. For your glory, we pray. Amen. I'd like to invite